Matthew 12, 38 through 45. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he, being Jesus, answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. My title for today's sermon is Judgment Day and the Pharisees. My more juvenile title is The Epic Fail of the Pharisees. That's what I wanted to call it, but my millennialism is coming out. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines epic fail. It's in the dictionary now. Notable, obvious, and usually public failure. If you type in epic fail on YouTube, you might get a good laugh. And there will be a lot of cringe, depending on the content. This is the epic fail of the Pharisees. They are flat out rejecting their Messiah, even with convincing proof. They reveal their black hearts by opening their mouths and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They request more proof, even though Jesus has given them plenty. And ultimately, they will, re they will reap what they sow on Judgment Day, condemnation for their unbelief. When we read these stories about the Pharisees, we've got to be careful, because we could be tempted to think, those Pharisees. Fools. Unbelievable. Here they are. They have Jesus standing right in front of them, and they don't believe. He's given them all these convincing proofs, yet they deny Jesus to his face. Oh, if only Jesus came to our city. If only he showed up here, we would believe. We would respond differently than they would. Sometimes in Watching the critical Pharisees, we ourselves become critical, judgmental towards them. And think, somehow we're better than they are. That's not true. 
Jesus tells Thomas, his disciple, one day an apostle. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? He says, blessed are those who have not seen, yet they believe. And that's what faith is. The author of Hebrews describes faith as this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. And faith itself, having your eyes open to believe Jesus Christ, faith itself is a gift. It's not because you conjured it up or you're better off than anyone else. Ephesians 2 makes it explicit and plain. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so the more I read about the Pharisees and their unbelief, the more of my old self I see in them. I too was once a hypocrite. I too was once blind. Arrogant. Thinking I knew the right way. I was walking the right way. When I was so far and so wrong in my religious pride. Growing up a church kid. A little Pharisee. And it wasn't until God, thanks be to God, that he opened my eyes to see Christ and believe. And that's not my own doing. I have no boast. No claim to fame except that Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, illuminated my mind. He took the blinders off and I saw Christ, the perfect Savior, saved by grace, faith given to me. I have no boast. It's Christ through me, as we just sang. And I'm praying for the same thing for you today, that you would see the light that you would behold Christ because he is greater, as this text shows us. He's greater. He's greater than all your problems and your successes. He's greater than your heartaches and the heart throbs. He's greater than your worst day or your best day on earth. He's greater than your boss. He's greater than your pastor. He's greater than your president. And he's greater than the government. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And the heart that beholds him, the heart that beholds him, that treasures him as the greatest, is the heart that is filled with faith. But the heart that denies Christ by word or by deed is no more than an empty religion. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So the question for you is, What do you think of Christ? How does your heart respond to the glory of Jesus Christ? Well, let's go through this count. I have a simple four-point outline. The first is the ridiculous request. The ridiculous request. Look at verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, Pharisees, the religious leaders, scribes, the religious experts, you could say, Knew their Bibles, or they thought they did. And it says that they answered him. And so this is an answer back to what Jesus has just said. This is their great response after being called a brood of vipers. After being told that they were condemned for their blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is what they have to say in response. And the gospel author Mark tells us that they make this request to test Jesus. To test him. Even though they call him teacher, 
It's through a veneer of politeness that they want to stump the teacher. And so here's their great attempt. They say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They want a sign. That is, they want distinguishing proof. They want a miraculous demonstration that Jesus is the Christ. I laugh to think that these men were elbowing each other going, we got him with this one. What? What were they expecting? What did they want to see? Did they want to see lepers cleansed? They want to see the lame walk? They want to see the blind given sight? Did they want to see a girl raised from the dead? Did they want to see a man who taught with authority greater than the scribes? Did they want to see storms silenced? Jesus demonstrated all these things. He showed them convincingly that He is the Christ. They were blind, so hardened and blind, they couldn't see it. It's like, what, do they want him to pull a rabbit out of a hat now? Levitate? Are they not entertained? Are they not convinced? All they had to do was open their Bibles to Isaiah 35 or Isaiah 42, and then look at the life of Jesus going, yeah, he's, it's lining up. This is exactly who Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would be. But they can't see it. They look at the sun but can't see his light. They're so hardened they can't feel his heat. Satan has blinded their minds in unbelief. See, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The damned say it to his face. They want more convincing proof. But it will never be enough. What about you? Do you need to see to believe? Do you need to touch him to know him? You want more convincing proof than Christ has revealed in his word? Will you believe without seeing? He's proven himself to us. We have an accurate testimony of the life of Jesus Christ, the fulfiller of prophecies, the Messiah. Will you believe? They want more proof, but it will never be enough because even the greatest proof of all time doesn't convince them, which takes us to the second point, the preeminent proof, the greatest proof. Jesus says in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now he calls this generation both evil and adulterous. Two strikes, bad ones. They're evil, meaning they're corrupt to the root. They're corrupt from the heart, Jesus exposes in earlier verses. And adulterous, they are unfaithful. Even though God has betrothed them as a people, talking to the people of Israel, they have been unfaithful to his promises, unfaithful to his covenants. In other words, this generation is corrupt and worse, they know better. They know better. Because like I said, God has betrothed himself to them. They have the covenants. They have the promises of old. They have the word of the living God. These scribes should have known it. 
And so Jesus rebukes this generation specifically. But you need to know in Israel's history, there are several generations that are called evil and adulterous in the Old Testament. Here's a few. The generation under Moses. God says, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land. Verse, or chapter 32, verse 5, they have dealt corruptly. They are crooked in a twisted generation. So that generation doesn't walk into the promised land. Joshua takes the next generation in. Then there's the generation after Joshua in the time of the judges. Judges 2 describes it this way. And all that generation, that's the generation under Joshua, they were gathered to their fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, idolatry, adultery, spiritual adultery. So there's another evil generation. And then there's the generation and several of them in the time of the divided kingdom of Israel. The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes, in accordance with the law that I gave your fathers. It says in the text, but they would not listen. They were stubborn, it says. Sound familiar? Just as their fathers have been, they despised his statutes, his covenant. They went after false idols, idolatry, spiritual adultery, they abandon all the commandments of the Lord their God. So, in the Bible, we've seen stubborn, evil, and adulterous generations before in the Old Testament. Unfaithful generations. But this generation, Jesus tells us, tops them all. The one that Jesus revealed himself to. The eyewitnesses of the Messiah. Because they were witness to the preeminent proof. Those Old Testament generations, they got prophets, they got the word of God, they had miraculous signs, but they didn't have this sign, this sign that Jesus was going to demonstrate. Jesus says, but back to our text, he says, but no sign will be given to it. That is this generation. And what Jesus means by that is that there's going to be no greater sign. There's going to be no comparable sign or no additional sign, except, look back at the passage, except... Verse 39, the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus references an Old Testament prophet. And he uses him as, a, as what's called a type. A type. Old Testament types are people, events, or things that have a connection to Jesus Christ. And that connection is revealed in the New Testament. Not everything in the Old Testament is a type of Christ, we acknowledge those typological connections that the New Testament reveals as this is Christ or Christ is greater than this thing. And here Jesus makes a connection between a historical event in the life of Jonah and the historical event in the life of Jesus. And here is the event that he makes a connection with. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Implication, Jonah walked out of the fish. Jesus is going to walk out of the grave. The preeminent proof of Jesus' power, the ultimate sign, is the resurrection. And it's coming. 
This generation will witness it. Now, some might get hung up on the fact that Jesus says three days and three nights. If you do the math on the historical record, it doesn't match. Jesus died on Friday and he rose on Sunday. That would be three days, two nights, right? A simple explanation of this is in the Jewish language. Day and night are two parts of one unit, a whole day. So in the Jewish language, if something only took a portion of the day, just a portion of it, then both day and night would be mentioned. For example, if I was going to meet up with Matthew the tax collector, and I'm going to have coffee with him on Tuesday afternoon, I might say, in the Jewish language, I'll be with Matthew in three days and three nights. Even though from our vantage point, it's more like three days, two nights. You understand? You're including the three whole units. The rest of today, tomorrow, Monday, and Tuesday. So anyways, that's the brief explanation of that. But you shouldn't get hung up on this detail. And you'll miss the real significance of this promise. This is the first mention of the resurrection by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Think about it. Matthew has been building a case that Jesus is the Christ. A convincing case. It's like Matthew, like I said, has been... You know, he has the prophet Isaiah open, and he's quoting back to Old Testament prophets saying, here he is, here he is, here he is. What more proof do you need? And then here's the ultimate proof. The one that even the Pharisees will reject. It's the ultimate sign. As Calvin puts it, it's the one sign that stands for all signs. This generation will witness Jesus rise again. Just as Jonah walked out of the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will walk out of the grave. The resurrection is a verifiable fact in history. It is. It's not myth. It's not legend. It's not fairy tale. Jesus died and he was buried. No legitimate historian would deny that fact. Over 500 witnesses saw him alive after his crucifixion and his burial at one time. 1 Corinthians 15.6. And Paul tells us, he tells the Corinthians, in around 50 or 60 AD, that most of those eyewitnesses who saw them were still alive as he wrote that epistle. The tomb is empty, no body found. And it wouldn't be stolen because professional Roman guards, their life was staked to watching that body and protecting it. All the apostles died. Most were martyred proclaiming the truth of the resurrection. There's verifiable proof that the resurrection is a historical fact. Don't let liberal law scholars dissuade you. There's more proof in the resurrection of Jesus Christ than in the Big Bang Theory. So let's put that in the history books. Jesus Christ died and he was risen, rose from the grave. And this is a significant tenet in our faith. The resurrection is the death blow to sin and death. The resurrection confirms that if we're in Christ, we will in the future be resurrected with him in glory. The resurrection gives you new life, a new heart. It unshackles you from slavery to sin in this life so that you can obey Christ from a transformed heart. 
Paul says, without the resurrection, our faith is null, it's void, it's worthless. The resurrection is everything. And do you believe it? Do you believe not only in the historical event of the resurrection, but do you depend and hope on the significance of it every day you live? Every day of your life should not walk far from the hill with a cross on top and an empty tomb below. Stay close to these essential truths of the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of the resurrection, not just on Easter, but every day we need it. So that is the preeminent proof. Third point, the superior son. The superior son. The main application of this section is to behold Jesus Christ. Verse 41 says, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42 says, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus Christ is the superior son. In this whole chapter, Matthew has highlighted the reality that Jesus is the better prophet, he's the better priest, and he's the better king. First, he talked about how Jesus is the better priest, or he said, in fact, Jesus is greater than the temple, the whole sacrificial system. Now, the temple, Jesus references it in Matthew 12, verse 6, the temple is the place where the priest would stand daily, offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to atone for sin. It was perpetual, unending, because the sacrifice of animals cannot atone for the sin of men. And Jesus Christ offers himself a once-for-all sacrifice that atones for all sin. So Jesus is greater than the whole sacrificial system, the priest, temple, and sacrifices. He's the better priest. Second, Jesus is the better prophet. He's greater than Jonah. The Old Testament told us that he would be better than Moses. He'd be better than Elijah. While all these prophets were mouthpieces through which God revealed himself in his word, Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. He not only wrote prophecy, but he brings it to fulfillment. He's the better prophet. Finally, Jesus is the better king. He's better than Solomon. Solomon, the greatest earthly king that this world has ever known or will know. But compared to Christ as Jesus prayed, Solomon is a pauper. Jesus Christ is far greater. Solomon was the wisest king to ever live. But Colossians 2.3 tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We need to behold Jesus. We need to regard in, in our mind that Jesus is the superior one. He's better than everyone else. He is Lord over all. And he should occupy the throne of our hearts. We should serve and surrender to him as Lord. The scene Jesus illustrates in this passage is is really cool. He he describes the heavenly courtroom. And he gives these two witnesses that attest to the superiority of the Son. Suppose the Pharisees stand before God on judgment day and say, But God, we didn't see a sign. Well, the first witness would come to the stand, and that is the Ninevites. The Ninevites. This, again, is a connection to the story of Jonah. Short summary, after a crazy night at sea, Jonah is swallowed by a fish. Three days later, he, the fish spits him out. He goes to Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a, no, a notoriously ruthless empire, a great empire, 
a significant pagan nation. And Jonah's message is repent because judgment is coming. A real heartwarming, God loves everyone message. Should win a lot of converts, right? What actually did. The word from the fish man gets to the king of Nineveh. He believes it. And he issues a proclamation to the whole empire, the whole city. He calls them to mourn, to call out to God, to turn from evil, which is repentance. And sure enough, the whole city repents. And God relents from destroying them in judgment. It's an incredible revival, the greatest revival in the Old Testament. And but Nineveh comes to the stand on judgment day. And they scoff at this generation of Israel. They condemn them. They say, you fools. We repented at the preaching of a man who walked out of a fish, and you had the one who walked out of a grave. How could you? Behold, someone greater than Jonah preaches to us. The second witness is the queen of the south, also known as the queen of Sheba. James read the account this morning. Solomon was ruling at the height of Israel's kingdom. Solomon asked for wisdom from God, and God responded in spades, not only gave him wisdom and knowledge, but he gave him great possession, riches, and power, far beyond any other king of the earth. And the queen of Sheba hears of the renowned wisdom of Solomon, and she travels far to test him and see if what she heard is true. And she asks him a plethora of difficult questions. And I want to just reread this part. It's amazing. Solomon answered all her questions, 1 Kings 10.3. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba, she saw his wisdom, saw his house, his food, his officials, his servants, the burnt offerings that he offered to the house of the Lord, it says in the text, there was no more breath in her. She was left breathless at the wisdom of this earthly king. And so she takes the stand on Judgment Day. And she looks at Israel, this generation, and says, You fools. You fools. I traveled hundreds of miles to hear the wisest king on earth speak. And you reject the words of the anointed one, of Christ. Solomon doesn't hold a candle to him. Someone greater than Solomon speaks. Jesus is greater. He is. Greater than any earthly, you know, influencer, celebrity, idol that you have. He's greater than them. The question is, does he occupy the throne of your heart? He's Lord over all, all the earth, Lord over everything. You don't make Jesus Lord. You submit to him as Lord. Does he have your heart? All of it. He doesn't share that throne with anyone else. He is the superior son. Finally, point number four, the degenerate generation. The degenerate generation. This is a strange parable. Let me reread it. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit, that is a demon, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Passes through the void. But it finds none. It's looking for a person. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. Almost like preparing the house for its return. 
Then it goes in and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there. The last state of that person is obviously worse than the first. Then Jesus says, so also it will be with this evil generation. Strange parable. The personification of this demon and this house, which is obviously a person's soul. The meaning of the parable is pretty straightforward. But the application varies. You pick up a commentary and you'll get a different opinion about how Jesus applies this parable. Is this for individuals? Does this apply to those that Jesus exercised demons out of? Does it apply to these Pharisees? Or does it apply to the various unbelieving generations of Israel? Variety of applications. But let's first look at the, the straightforward meaning. Here's the straightforward meaning. You can write it down. I don't think I have it written on the screen. It's very simple. Empty souls are a breeding ground for the enemy. Empty souls are a breeding ground for the enemy. Just as Jesus said earlier, whoever's not with me is against me. And at that time, he was talking about plundering the enemy's house and getting rid of all his servants, demons. So if you're not with Christ, if you're not gathering God's people and making disciples, then you're scattering God's people and you're scattering their minds and giving them over to the enemy. Paul implies in Ephesians 2 that if you're not alive, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And he says in that very passage that you walk according to the prince of the power of the air. Your God is Satan, the God of this world, and you serve him. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, whoever does not believe in Christ is blinded by the God of this world. So without faith, you stand as an enemy of God in your sins and you serve the enemy of God. You're an instrument in the hand of the prince of the power of the air. Sin and Satan will have their way with you. And without a better tenant for your heart, it will deteriorate and get worse. That's the, that's the significance of this parable. Empty souls are breeding grounds for the enemy. Now, I think a variety of applications are valid. First, and the most obvious application, is that Jesus is referring to this evil generation, the leaders of which are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so, it was obvious they were cleaning the outside of their cup. They performed their religious duties. They adhered to the law externally, but their soul was void and under the dominion of the enemy. And this most recent blasphemy of the Holy Spirit revealed where they really stood. It revealed the darkness inside of them. They were not friends of God. They were enemies of Him. And they were under the sway of the enemy. And they were worse than their unbelieving predecessors, the other generations in Israel. And I think it's a great application for all of the unbelieving and stubborn generations in Israel. The true reform was not happening for God's people, at least God's people in Israel. They did not repent. Therefore, they lacked the new heart promised in the new covenant. They lacked the Holy Spirit promised to the New Covenant saints. And this left them in a worse condition, with just a shell of religion. 
but not the heart of it, which is to know God, to be right with God by faith. They refused to repent. They were stubborn. And this generation is worse than them all because they saw the Messiah. Listen, a very important application point, something important for us to understand, and the history of Israel will attest that you cannot reform a nation without repentance and regeneration. You cannot reform a nation without repentance and regeneration. A king can't do it. A conservative politician can't do it. The preaching of God's word has to do it. It has to work in the hearts of people. They need to repent and be born again. Look at Israel. Case and point. And all these religious external reformations, but never true heart transformation. And today, even to this day, they're rebellious and stubborn until God will give them new hearts and a new spirit in the end when he comes again. Finally, I think there's individual application for our lives. Listen, without the regeneration of our hearts, without the indwelling Holy Spirit, we leave our souls empty to deteriorate and degenerate. There is only one throne in your heart, and like I said, Jesus doesn't share it with the enemy. And you need to stop saying, I need to do better. I need to clean myself up. You need to stop saying, I need to be a better person. I need to get back into religion. When you determine by your own effort and by your own strength and by your own works to reform your life, you're essentially sweeping the house and preparing it for the enemy. It's not, it's not what you need. You need to be born again. You need regeneration. You need a new heart. You can't fix yourself. You need a savior outside of yourself. You need the righteousness that comes from Christ, not your own self-righteousness. You need faith. You need to believe in Christ and trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. Good works, religious duties will not save you. Here's what you must do. You must repent and believe from the heart. You must trust in Jesus Christ, not in yourself. The prayer of faith is not, Jesus, I invite you into my life, as if he's one of the guests that occupy your soul. No, no, no. It's Jesus, I need you to clean the house. And I need you to take the seat of my heart. The throne. Your rightful place. You're the great Savior, the only Savior. I am a great sinner I surrender. I surrender. Give me faith to believe. Have you prayed that prayer? Have you truly surrendered? Or do you come here today where it's so easy to blend in, so easy to blend in with just an external shell of religion, so easy to come to church, doing good things, play the game, talk the talk, but your heart is not truly surrendered to Christ? Do you believe? Do you have faith? Are you born again? You must be born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus. But if you're here today, a broken sinner, got some dirty spots, you had a rough week, man, you were, you were fighting sin, fighting coworkers, fighting the government, fighting Twitter, fighting the world. But you come in here today and you just recognize, I've got nothing except Christ alone. I trust him. He's my savior. 
That's a good spot to be. That's the heart that is full in Christ, the heart that depends on Him and not in yourself, not in other people, but in His perfect atoning death, His victorious resurrection, and the hope that He's coming back to take you home. Do you trust Christ? If you haven't yet done that, please do that today. You must be born again. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He'll answer that prayer and make you his child by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, humbly ask that you would do what only you can do by your spirit. I pray that you would grant faith to some in this room who don't have it. I pray that you would clean hearts that are dirty and unclean. Pray that you would give them, open their eyes to see and behold Jesus Christ as the true, the wonderful, great Savior and Lord and King. He's greater than everyone else and everything else. Pray that they would see Him in faith, that would trust in Him for salvation and rest in Christ as the only way to be made right with you, O God. I pray that you would do that miraculous work by your Spirit in the hearts of people here. And I pray for those of us who do trust Christ, who do cling, although sometimes feebly, but we cling to Christ, His finished work on the cross, His resurrection, we believe. pray that you grant us faith. Help us in our unbelief to trust in Him, despite where this world is going, despite the sway of the enemy and culture and politics that we would trust the better prophet, priest, and king. We would hope in him. Give us great assurance this week in Jesus Christ. Help us, though weak and poor and needy, help us to cling to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.